No dilly-dallying. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to, you know. Hello, gentle listener. Too much. Welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. We are on a mission today. And I am Michael, your host, and this is my guest, Ethan. Hi. Uh, we are still discussing the play The Seagull by Anton Chekhov. Uh, once again, I want to uh, mention the fact that there is discussion of suicide in this play. And so if you would rather uh, avoid that subject, this is your, your trigger warning. Uh, it's really unavoidable in the subject matter of the play. Um, last time, we discussed the basically the context for the play and... Act one. There are two more, three more acts uh, of the play that I think we're planning to get through in this episode. We also, um, just to be clear, implied as recently as the beginning of last episode that we were only going to spend one episode uh, talking about this play. Mm-hmm. But right, uh, Chekhov got away from Look us. Look where that got us. <laughs> we loaded, we loaded the gun of. We're only going to talk about this for one episode, and then we completely failed to fire it or misfire it. I don't know. I've I've kind of lost lost track of this analogy. In any case, there's a dead seagull at our feet, and yeah. I don't recognize you, Ethan. And I'm not sure which um, of us is the dead seagull. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of we'll us is going to claim to be it, but. <laughs> Like a lot, yes. But I'm not sure if we're supposed to believe them. That's true. That's true. But, um, I assume you're still drinking the same thing you were last week, Ethan. I am. I'm last, drinking. Last episode. I'm drinking plantation rums, artisanal, artisanal infusion, Stiggins fancy smoky formula. Mm-hmm. You... And I am still drinking this uh, weird concoction of a cocktail that I made that I am still very delighted in. And I'm I'm enjoying every sip of this combination of whiskey and absinthe and lemon juice and lime juice and club soda. Um, if you want any more explanations than that, go back to the last episode. Go! Do it! Listen, now we're going to talk about the play. Thank um, so you, you gave the, the, the hint already, Ethan, about, um, probably the most famous saying of Chekhov, um, when he, it, it's, it's usually called just Chekhov's gun, right. um, where he, he said, if you put a gun on the mantle in act one, it had better fire by act three. Yeah. Um, which, or something like along those lines. Yeah. Which I do. I, I, you know, if we come to it in the original context, and with the original author, I will respect that. And, um, you know, I don't have any objection to the discussion of it in that context. I will say it gets yanked into a lot of context and used pretty obnoxiously. And I would venture to say badly in yes. advice given, especially to like beginning level writers of various kinds of fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, it becomes too much of a crutch, I think, sometimes um, for for advice giving. 
But um, in any case, this is largely considered, this play, The Seagull, is largely considered to be the origin of the, um, not the saying, but the concept in Chekhov. Okay. Because it's not in Act 1, but it is here in Act 2 um, that you have the gun sure. that uh, is presented. And then by the end of the play, there is a gun fired. Right. Now, I don't think it's explicit that it has to be the same gun. Um, there are multiple guns, I think, uh, that um, are brought up throughout the play. But um, in any case, it comes partway through Act 2 here. Um, there, there's a fair amount of, uh, of the play that comes even within Act 2 before we get to the point when Trepliov comes in and says, uh, enters without a hat, carrying a gun and a dead seagull. Uh, and he comes and he talks to Nina uh, alone here, and he lays the dead seagull at her feet. Uh, and she says, what does that mean? And he says, I was a brute and killed this seagull today. I lay it at your feet. What's the matter with you? She says, picks up the seagull and looks at it. Trepliev, after a pause, soon I'll kill myself like this. Um, and so it, it's, um, I mean, the, the, there's so much between the lines going on here i i read it really just mostly flat uh and the that's because there are just so many interpretations that can come through all of this but here we have the gun uh and the explicit line given as well that this gun will be used uh for self-harm um by the end of the play spoiler alert uh trepliov does in fact kill himself in fact uh, between Acts 2 and 3, he apparently attempts suicide. Uh, unless I missed it, uh, I think that is done off off stage completely. Um, like, there's, it's only referred to. There's no action for it. Um, but the end of the play, uh, you hear the shot off stage. Um, and then... Right. Um, yeah, the, the actual... Uh, at the end, yeah, you just hear the shot. That also does not happen on stage. Right. Um, which, you know, just taking that uh, Chekhov's gun concept here, this seems to be already a more, like, sophisticated aspect to that mm-hmm. um, because taking all of those acts together, uh, Chekhov's gun says you have this gun, it should fire by the end of the play. Chekhov has the gun fire twice. Mm-hmm. Once you don't see it, you see the effects of it in um, uh, Trepliov's failed suicide attempt, uh, which would, in the rules of Chekhov's gun, is basically understood, lead you to think the gun is fired, it's done. Right. But then it is fired again later on. So it's uh, almost a, a, a red herring or bait and switch sort of thing right. with uh, with Chekhov's gun that like you think it's done but it's not yet um, that, uh, that he's done here. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a, a large view of, of that concept in, in general. But so when we talked about Act 1, I think Act 1 um, is pretty compact in the sense that you get the introduction of all these characters, you get the play within the play, um, and the um, a, a lot about Trepliov's character and his ambitions and art. What is Act 2 about, Ethan? Uh, that's a great question. Um, 
I mean, in the context of some of our discussion uh, from the last episode, um, I almost want to assert that Act 2 is about nothing. Um, <laughs> at the... the um, at least in my... Uh, the translation I read, um, the beginning of Act 2, the, the stage direction, is the side lawn laid out for croquet. Uh, mm -hmm. Upstage right, the house, its broad veranda, the lake is visible off, off left, sparkling in the sun. Um, and so, for one thing, you know, we do have the lake in this act. It's, it's or in this, you know, mm -hmm. set dressing, whatever, it's um, not blocked off. Uh, which almost feels like an indication that this is a more, um, I don't know, to me, I mean, even reading the rest of the, the uh, stage direction, flower beds, it is noon and hot at the edge of the lawn in the shade of an old linden tree garden benches, Arcadina, Dorn, and Masha, Dorn holds an open book. It's a very Arcadian kind of um, uh, mm. uh, image to me, and and it it speaks a lot of like the leisure of country life and um uh uh you know just it it seems like mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of about it's kind of a acts two through four of shakespeare's as you like it like it's just kind of about people messing <laughs> around in the woods uh yeah and kind of like talking about stuff um, but as we said in, uh, last episode when we brought up the idea that Chekhov's plays are plays about nothing, um, it seems like it's also sort of about everything, um, mm -hmm. that there are, uh, you know, there are dark undertones throughout this, this Arcadia, um, mm -hmm. is this the, uh, yeah, this is where Nina calls herself the the um, the seagull, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, I was trying to find that actually. Because I think it happens before uh, Constantine lays the lays the gull at her feet. Um, yeah, I think it is. Um, I was trying to find it. I can't find it. Um, yeah, but no, you're you're right that uh, it is. It's about nothing, but also, in a way, it's about everything. Um, in a way, the the performance is taken away. It, the act one was about the performance, and that's all kind of stripped away. So now we're getting back to normal. Um, and what's what I think is fascinating here is you know the, the talking about talking about feelings as people talk about their feelings. Um, Trepliov in act one said very clearly, I'm very happy. Um, I'm madly happy, he says. Um, and this is talking about, uh, how he's in, in love with Nina. Um, which is interesting because we had Masha say at the very beginning of the play, I'm unhappy. Uh, we find out she's in love with Trepliov, uh, and that's unrequited. Repliov is in love with Nina and is madly happy as a result of that. But now in Act 2, uh, while he's talking to Nina, 
He says, if you only knew how unhappy I am. Um, so in some way, uh, the, the stage is gone, it, even though it's not, the stage is still um, erected uh, on, on the stage. Um, but we're, we're living life now. We're, we're in real life, and therefore the performances are gone, and the, the heightened emotions are gone too. So I think this is where really the commentary on theater, ironically, comes in, because um, the, the fake emotions can't be there anymore. The, the um, contrived feelings mm-hmm. uh, are removed which is something that Chekhov would have been objecting to with the uh, melodrama of the day. Uh, those aren't there anymore. Now we get the real, genuine human emotions uh, here. So this is this is where the, the commentary comes in, uh, not necessarily in the stage itself, but in moving away from stage into um, real life, real country living. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nina, also, it, it's interesting in this, like, um, it, it's kind of an uncanny sort of thing we we don't exactly get it day to day when we have like our uh, our celebrities on talk shows and stuff where they're sitting on it we get a, a fake version of it where they're sitting on lounge chairs and being interviewed right. and like having a living room conversation right um they're still celebrities they're still higher up in that way they're also still but here in this in a context like that Exactly, exactly. Still performing. But then here we have Nina. Um, she comes and she sits down among everybody and she says, I am happy. I'm one of you now. Um, so this this actress who everyone has only really seen as an actress now all of a sudden comes and sits down uh, and the mask is off. The performance is off. Um, it, we saw her interacting with Trepliov in Act mm. One, but only Trepliov. Um, besides her performing. And now we get her with everybody else. And interestingly here, when she is with everybody else, uh, she confesses that she finds Trepliov's play uninteresting. Because mm-hmm. um, Masha tries to get him, get her to, to read some of his play, and she goes, ugh. <laughs> Basically, right. why? It's boring. Um, so the, the mask is off. Uh, the real Nina is is here, so it's a little uncanny there. Um, um, so that it, again, it's it's just shown in that way that the performer becomes a real it, person. It happens um, to several of of them as well. Um, I was yeah. I was looking through and and uh, one that jumped out at me was a line that um, Arkadina, the the older actress. Um, Says, mm-hmm. oh, what could be more boring than this divine country boredom? It's hot, it's quiet, nobody <laughs> does a thing, we all just sit around and talk. You know, my dears, I do love it here, but if I were working now uh, in a hotel room, in a room in a hotel somewhere, memorizing my lines for a new play, that would be heaven. Um, mm-hmm. And then a little bit later, uh, Trigorin, so you have, um, you know, Nina, the. Uh, who is has all of the the um privileges of youth and beauty she has expressed you know boredom and heartache and dissatisfaction you've had our uh 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 arcadina who um who whose name now that i've said arcadia uh, it occurs to me has has some uh presence <laughs> there um not to try to like uh step on the toes of names with michael or anything 
Um, no, no. But, but Arcadina, you know, she's she's a she has a sort of this boredom, this dissatisfaction. Um, and then uh, at least again in my translation, I'm I'm going to assume this this would hold across translations. But Tregoran has some of the longest single uh, uh, lines or or passages um, in the play. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end, Nina says, "But you have such a beautiful life." Um, and Targoran has a mm. has a uh, um, monologue, I guess that at least in my version is over a page long of solid text, starting with yep. "What's so wonderful about it?" Uh, uh, he says, "You know, let's all right, let's talk, shall we? Let's talk about my bright, interesting life. Where shall we start?" Um, and he just basically. He's, you know, the sentence, a sentence that jumps out at me as I'm skimming this again is, it's a stupid life. Um, mm. You know, uh, and, and basically talks about, and so again, a very, in the world of the play, a very successful novelist, um, deeply dissatisfied with his own sort of lot uh, uh, mm-hmm. in life. Um, and... I found one other, ah, yes, um, and then of course, uh, Constantine, uh, uh, Triplio, Mm -hmm. um, uh, he has a, a monologue sort of, uh, in between here, a little little bit before Trigorin's monologue, where Nina's essentially kind of trying to call him out, um, yeah, this is just after he drops the seagull uh uh at her feet and he has a a monologue um that you know he's kind of kind of coming apart and once again we get a hamlet reference uh towards the end of this monologue yeah uh uh referring to Tregoran, his possibly you know his uh claudius um he says, just like Hamlet, he was reading a book too. Words, words, words. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it is almost like, um, and I had this thought I think when I when I first read it too, but it's like almost feels like Act One is the play, and Act Two is the commentary on the play, and possibly even yeah. Acts Two through Four are all the commentary on the play. Mm-hmm. Um, I would obviously need to yeah reread and and annotate better to fully be able to support that assertion. But um, or or you know to put it a different way, it almost feels like looking at the same set of things but from from opposite perspectives, like uh looking at at the same jewel but but twirling it around in your hands so you see the the other side of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, it'd be interesting to see exactly what that is. I like that interpretation in general. Um Yeah. But um oh I did uh just uh on another note find where Nina calls herself a sequel seagull. It is in Act One. Oh, it's in Act One. Um so we couldn't find it. Um She says, um 
uh, well, she's talking about uh, the the life that's going on at Soren's estate. And she says, my father and his wife won't let me come here. They say you're bohemians. They're afraid I might become an actress. But I'm drawn here to the lake like a seagull. My heart is full of you. Um, so we get the idea of being a seagull is pursuing a dream. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or being drawn to what you think is almost like it's almost like everyone has this perception of what they think is their real life. Um, and then yeah. in trying to pursue that, they find something else. Um, so that, you know, Nina coming to this place like a seagull drawn to drawn to the side of the ocean um, finds that the wrong person loves her and she loves the wrong person. Um, and it's almost like that moment in Act 2 then underlines this when a uh, 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 you know, um, Tripliev, when he uh, clearly remembers this remark of hers uh, uh, better than she does, so that when he drops a seagull at her feet, it's it's meaningful and in fact symbolic to him, but not to her. So he he feels mm-hmm. like his real life is with her, and she um, doesn't even seem to acknowledge it. Though I think. Another available right. interpretation is that this is a very Hamlet-y uh, uh, gesture that, you know, could be interpreted mm. as either him being mad or him being too sane, um, partially <laughs> dependent on the reaction of the perceiver of his action. Um, you get a little yeah. bit of, of Triplio mm-hmm. uh, uh, being Hamlet to Nina's Ophelia out of that mm-hmm. interpretation. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Um and I well, do you think she gets it at the end? Um so at the end of act 2, um the seagull image is brought up again this time by Trigorin um or Trigorin. Um and it's the he has this idea of a plot for a short story. A young girl has lived since childhood on the shores of a lake, a young girl like you, she loves the lake like a seagull and is happy and free like a seagull but a man comes along sees her and idly kills her like this seagull um so it's it's uh, uh, like he's almost putting too fine a right. point on it um but bringing up this whole idea of of the seagull and then her la- Nina's last line she's um like the the last person on stage and she comes uh, it says coming towards the footlights after some thought and she says it's a dream and then the curtain um again it's one of those lines that's almost out of nowhere but like is she interpreting the seagull is she um exegeting the 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 seagull like this is this is what it's a dream the seagull is a dream and the dream is what dies yeah and i mean even if she is i still i think there are multiple ways to take it as well as to take uh uh little summary of his own um potential short story non-existent <laughs> at this point short story um in the sense that you this could be about uh Tripliev and Nina but it could also be about Trigorin picking up on the fact that Nina um has a thing for him and a warning or an idle threat or an idle like not even a threat just sort of um, mm. an idol uh, 
to just say to her that like I'm the sort of person that if you get involved with me, I'll destroy your life and not even necessarily for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, which is obviously a pretty dark interpretation, but um, I think it's I think it's there. I think it's available. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in her own naivety, she might be saying it's a dream in the sense of, like, he might be dangerous, but it's a dream. Right. I'd love to be with him, right. you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I just had another thought that was there. announced. Oh, um, it, so, okay, so talking about the seagull and the seagull dying and Nina is the seagull, but Tripliov also says, I'll soon kill myself mm-hmm. like this. Like, I think there's a couple of mm-hmm. redirects happening here um where you know in a typical mystery it's a whodunit uh but in this drama it's a who's it done to um so like we we get the impression of this darkness here that someone is going to die is and uh it's probably going to be trepliov who um does it although triggerin is becoming a suspect as well but um, is he going to kill himself or is he going to kill mm. Nina? I think is a question that's um, brought up there uh, at that point. Um, especially after Trigorin, uh, Trigorin gives this um, uh, plot that uh, he kills this the girl mm. like Nina, like a seagull, sure. like this seagull. Why don't we go on to Act 3? What okay? So what is Act Three about? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I like your interpretation in general that like Acts two through four are the interpretation or the commentary on the play in yeah. Act One. Or it um, could be that each each additional act is a commentary on the last act. Um, that's what I was gonna say. That like it's it, it's this one seems like more of the same from Act Two, but also to comment yeah. on it to to reflect on um act two uh um one thing to just point out from the opening stage direction this is uh act three is the first time we are indoors um mm-hmm. so i don't know if there's anything there in terms of like sort of the world closing in around these people uh mm-hmm. or any number of things like that yeah, that could be a, a number of different things. I mean, it's just it's becoming more domestic. We get the uh, uh, the starting point that Masha is uh, engaged to Medvedenko. Um, that uh, that comes out here. Uh, so they're they're going to get married, which is um, I, I, again another death of a dream uh, that uh, she wanted to be with Trepliov, but can't for undisclosed reasons. Uh, and um, uh, she she said that too in her first line. I'm going to rip this love from my heart, rip it out by the roots, uh, and that's why she's getting married. She's she's killing the dream by getting married, um, which is, I think, another fascinating aspect to this character of Masha. That I, I, I like. She might be my favorite favorite character from this whole play. Uh, she's got so much going on, and like. We can talk more about her when he, when we get to the end too, but uh, it's it, she she kind of gives the barometer for what each act is about. I think. Yeah, um, I think so. I mean, a lot of this act is, um, 
essentially the uh, the old song "Should I Stay or Should I Go." Um, there are multiple uh-huh. instances of people uh, deciding or being persuaded about whether they should they should stay um, here in the country on this estate or whether they should go somewhere else. Uh, the the obvious ones being Arcadina and Arcadina and um, mm-hmm. uh, the writer Tregoran, um, Tregoran. Mm-hmm. But even uh, Arcadina was asking Soren to stay, or implying that he should stay, uh, partly mm-hmm. to help take care of Constantine. So you know, there's there's this. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Soren is saying, "I'm gonna go. Yeah. I'm gonna go to town now." <laughs> um, and even so, yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of that. Of um, we're we're in the in the threshold here. Where are we coming? Yeah. Are we going? What's what's anybody doing? Uh, the the destinies kind of are are going to be determined after this act is what we're getting out of it. As everyone is either coming in or going out or staying right. or leaving, and even um, and I, th- I think as, I think your uh, observation that Masha kind of sets the scene or sets the tone for each act is is uh, very on point. But even even that discussion of her um, getting married is a sort of leaving. It's a sort of going, certainly out of mm-hmm. uh, the stasis that her life was in and the the situation of. Uh, being hopelessly in love with with Constantine. Um, yep. Uh, and then she yep. and then that launches straight into her and Trigorin discussing whether uh, whether Trigorin and Arcadina should go. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's also where um, Trigorin brings out the fact that um, Treplyov tried right. to shoot himself. Um, and like the the commentary on it is just so uh, I I want to say heartless, but like that that's almost putting too much judgment on it. But he says um, her son is behaving extraordinarily tactlessly. First he tries to shoot himself, and now I've heard he's going to challenge me to a duel. And what for? He sulks, snorts, preaches new art forms, but there's enough space for all new and old. Why do we have to wrestle? Um, and like it's. I, it's it seems to to be spoken in such a way that um, is mocking and just devaluing um, Trepliov completely, um, which is is Trepliov's big problem that he feels undervalued in mm. a, a way that he doesn't see any value to his life mm. with others. Um, or that any others can see any value to his life. Um, but it, it's interesting because but, it's like uh, there's an argument to be made that Constantine has done all of this to himself. That he yeah. he starts the play in a position of some some power in the sense that he's been able to have a stage erected, you know, we we can assume um, mm-hmm. He's been able to command this audience, however small, to um, uh, come see his play. Uh, he's he's convinced Nina to to perform in it and um, so forth. 
And then it's like each action he takes, starting with his more or less temper tantrum uh, when the play is not reacted to the way he would like, um, makes him more mm-hmm. and more ridiculous. Like each each attempt yeah. to to uh, increase his his power or his his uh, credibility or or you know to to put it in terms that we've already been using to to sort of achieve his dreams or to um, to grow his dreams. Each attempt to do that like gets him farther away. Um, you know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the manner of a not to put too fine a point on it, but in the manner of a seagull flying into the wind and being blown backwards, um, which is something you will see, you know, if you hang out on yeah. enough beaches and places where seagulls are, you'll see eventually, you know, in a day with a stiff breeze, you'll see a seagull flapping and clearly trying to go one direction while being being beaten back. Um, I don't know that that exact image is... Mm-hmm. is uh, that I could support the idea that it's directly in this play, but it certainly seems like analogous to it works though. It works. So I'll, I'll take it. Action. Um, I did want to point out something that was brought up last episode, but is uh, another thing that uh, comes out explicitly here is um, Medvedenko is leading Soren along as Soren is walking on a stick. And Medvedenko says a riddle, four legs in the morning, two legs at midday, three in the evening, um, which is the riddle that the Sphinx posed Oedipus, to yeah. Oedipus. Um, so there's there's Oedipus again uh, right. coming out in all of this. And this comes right in the middle of uh, when Arkadina uh, is bringing in Trepliov, um, who has the bandage on his head. And she seems, at least at this point, to be just a completely doting mother um, trying to help mm. him and everything. Um she seems changed in a in a way uh, that uh, I it, I don't think is terribly long lasting. Not that she doesn't care. I don't want to imply that she's a completely uncaring mother, but um, there's she's I, I don't think she's as feeling as she could be. Anyway, um, so she says here shortly after this, sit down to Trepliov and takes the bandage from his head. It's like a turban on you. Yesterday, a caller in the kitchen asked what nationality you were, but it's almost healed. There's next to nothing there. Kisses him on the head. And when we've left you, you won't go bang, bang again, will you? Uh, (laughs) I don't know what your translation says there, but here it says, and when we've left, you won't go bang, bang again, will you? And he responds, no, mama, it was a moment of crazy despair. When I couldn't control myself, it won't happen again. Um... And so, like, she's she's worried about this, but, like, also can't even um, address it directly. Which, that I mean, that might also partially be um, censors or uh, conventions for the right. theater. Um, I'm not sure exactly. But, uh, like, I, I don't know. The phrasing of that stood out to me as being sure. weird. Yeah. I'm trying to find it in my own uh, translation just to see if... The phrasing is uh, is similar, but I'm not seeing it here. Um, I also was inspired to just do a quick uh, internet search, um, and I asked Bing uh, uh, for, you know, whatever grain of salt we have to take Bing's answer with, but I asked Bing when um, <laughs> Freud introduced his concept of the Oedipus Complex. Um and 
The internet's consensus seems to be the earliest was 1899 when he published On the Interpretation of Dreams. Um, which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because I would have, knowing that Freud was publishing around this period and was certainly influential on writers, both for, you know, whether they agreed with him or disagreed with him, he was a big influence. Um, you know, I would have guessed that this play was influenced by Freud, uh, but I can't find anything mm. chronologically to back that idea up uh, with at least a quick search. Maybe it's vice versa. Maybe Freud was influenced I mean, by this play. You know, it could be. I just, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to commit yeah. any uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacies here. <laughs> yeah. Much as I've um, probably committed dozens over the course of this podcast. Right. <laughs> right. Right. In, in any case, so um, this this goes on until. Um, we finally get um, uh, a connection with Nina and Trigorin, uh as they they're growing closer, um, and that love triangle is um, being b- shifted in, in that way, so that uh, Trepliev is being shifted out um, more and more. Um, uh, it, it's in the in the vein of each act being kind of a commentary on what happened in the previous act like if you take the the seagull being killed in act two as being something um central there act three kind of comments on that especially as it's uh played out in um Trepliov's attempted suicide like that seems to be the mm-hmm. catalyst for a lot of this even though it's a a sort of quiet catalyst. Like you don't even know that he has attempted suicide um, until a f- yeah. few lines in. Um, there's the the should I stay, should I go sort of aspect is already there. Um, and while I think everybody's decisions are connected to Tripliov's decisions. Uh, I don't know that we can say they're directly caused by them. It just seems like almost right. an excuse in some ways. Like, everybody already wanted different things. Masha may be excluded. Um, but even there, she wanted to have that yeah. security. Like, she was in love with Treplyov, but kind of knew she had to settle for Medvedenko even or before even this. Just, the, just she wanted um, the security of a resolution that, you know, maybe... Yeah. Much as much as it may have been a painful resolution, maybe the that pain was lesser than the pain of living in uncertainty mm-hmm. and ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, uh, I've noticed that as sort of as we talked that uh, the conclusion of Act Two and Act Three are parallel, and that they both feature a um, conversation between. Uh, uh, Trigorin and Nina, um, and mm-hmm. I, I think, to, in my mind, it it reinforces my own interpretation of the end of Act Two in the idea that Trigorin's idea for a short story is him warning Nina about what he'll do to her if she keeps following or pursuing him. Um, in the sense that at the end of Act mm-hmm. Three, uh, 
you know, we have... Again, I don't know if um, it's ever explicitly stated that Arkadina and Trigorin are, like, romantically entangled in any way, but certainly the vibe of Trigorin and Nina's developing entanglement has the vibe of, like, secrecy, even though Arkadina clearly kind of knows what's going on. Um, but right. We, it, right at the end of Act 3, we have... Um, you know, Nina, sort of the stage direction in mine at least is is nervous excitement, and she's clearly sought out Trigorin and um, uh, is saying I'm going to Moscow just like you, and uh, in mine at least it says Trigorin looks around and tells her stay at the Slavyansky Bazaar Hotel. Let me know as soon as you get there. Gives her a street says i have to go i'll be late uh nina says just one minute more Trigorin says you're so beautiful um she leans against his chest mm -hmm. uh says some mushy stuff and then um <laughs> i i'm paraphrasing somewhat here just to be clear uh not to to impugn paul schmidt's mm -hmm. translation um uh but then it says a long <laughs> kiss and and curtain so um to me, this is the classic, and maybe this is like, this seems to happen in a lot of movies in like, from like the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and those of course would be closer time-wise to 1895 and the dramatic conventions of the seagull than to now, but the implication mm -hmm. if you're going to, if you're, a, if you're a man in a position of power and you're going to kind of take what you can get from a hot young woman and like use her and leave her to put it in sort of the old-fashioned crude way um what you do again mm -hmm. sort of con in dramatic convention is you tell her a hotel to stay in and you tell her you'll see her but you don't make any commitments beyond that and that's like a you know right essentially him acting out his threat of like i'm gonna just ruin your life because i have nothing better to do um Again, I think, mm -hmm. you know, there are probably other available interpretations of the end of both of those acts, but it's an interesting parallel, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting that this scene, this act ends with that long kiss, too, because that image of, you know, two characters sharing a kiss as the curtain falls... Um, would imply a heavy romance but in fact this is so colored especially with the way Trigorin right. is looking around and like saying exactly what you said too like it's this is mm. not going to go well uh and we can see that in the, in the next everybody act. knows it um so it's it, it's it's something that should be this sappy romance but it's covered over and by it's like this, everybody this already knows it's not home. going to go well except maybe Nina and I think she probably even knows on some level Right. On some level, I think she knows that, like, she's just yeah. she's just performing. And I think, uh, you know, as we get into Act 4 also, what we see is everyone who has settled or gone after something winds up yeah. dissatisfied with it. And it starts again with yeah. Masha in Act 4, um, who's talking with her husband, uh, Medvedenko, um, who he's he wants right. to get back to the baby 
now that they have because two years have passed um, between Acts three and four, um, which is just interesting that like one, two, and three are all closer together, and then two years, uh, and we get to Act four, so we get to see kind of the it, it's almost deliberately yeah. here's the denouement, like we've had everything happen, and now we're and to me, we're seeing the outcome, we're seeing what what happened when I, when I read the play this time. Um... And, you know, as I read it, I was kind of already sort of thinking, developing in my mind the idea of each act being a commentary on the last one. To me, the fact that two years have passed seemed absolutely right. Like when I read that stage direction at the Mm -hmm. beginning of Act 4, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Um, Especially for what Chekhov's doing in terms Mm -hmm. of almost deliberately contravening melodrama. in order to really understand Mm -hmm. any of the consequences of any set of fraught circumstances like this, it feels to me like you have to have some time pass that ending a play without having the time pass is a deliberate choice to end it in a place where the highest likelihood of a seemingly happy outcome is. Um, Whereas letting time pass is, increasing the chances of things not going well simply by virtue of sort of how time works and human works humans work in time mm-hmm. yeah yeah um I, I think that's that's very uh good dis- uh, description and um an apt um observation to make um because like you know thinking about that melodrama that like you you talked about that too that the structure needs to be there no matter what like this has to happen at this point this has to happen at this point the timing isn't gonna work that way in real life um and so to get the the payoff to get the actual um resolution time needs to be there and so we need to reflect back on all that time that has come through um the uh, the conversation here with Masha and Medvedenko, and it starts out uh, the, this set dressing for for this, as is described, is is interesting too. There's um, it's semi darkness. The trees are groaning and the wind is howling in the chimneys, um, and you've got Medvedenko and Masha here talking. So it's already starting out that like um, th- th- this is the ghost of Christmas yet to come, right? Like this, it's, we're, that's the tone that's set here. It's dark and it's gloomy and nothing is going and again, right. Um, this, there's a storm if, uh, brewing. <laughs> you know, if each act is getting more claustrophobic than the last, like you have the shift from outdoors in two to indoors in three, and then from three to four, you have the shift from indoors on probably a relatively sunny day to indoors in, in this almost gothic nonsense mm-hmm. yeah yeah well it, it it's it, this is in just one room also um of right. of the house uh it's one of the reception rooms that's been turned into a study um there there are other uh rooms inside the house that are described here too but it's like that's that's the center here um but they're they're talking um and medvedenko wants to get back to their baby uh, that that they have, but Masha see, somehow, um, with what seems just like utter heartlessness, is like, no, mm-hmm. I'm not going back to my baby. <laughs> like, uh, it, it's almost hard to sympathize with that, but like, uh, that's that's part of the key 
too, I think, with all of these characters that it's it's hard to sympathize with just about mm-hmm. all of them in some degree or other um, mm-hmm. because they're real, um, because they're such real characters. Um, but uh, um, Medvedenko also comments on the theater that apparently has been left mm-hmm. there for the last two years and now is like a skeleton. Um, so it's it, it's uh, it's dead. The theater, this theater is dead uh, at this point. Um, and if that theater is representative of Trepliov's dreams, his dreams are dead. And like um, that's uh, I, I think something that's uh, that's certainly represented by the the way all the characters act in this final act. Um, but Masha isn't only uh, resistant to go home to their baby, but she's talking about Medvedenko and she says, you've become a bore. Um, and just doesn't, doesn't enjoy being around him anymore, which we already knew was going to happen. Um, like she was settling. That's what she said in the last act, that she was going to be settling. And so now we're seeing the result of that. Um, reminding Um, me of when my wife and I got married or, you know, we're preparing to get married and, uh, the pastor who, uh, did our ceremony, you know, we did a few hours of counseling, marriage counseling with him beforehand or premarital counseling, I guess, um, which is pretty standard, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, one of the things that he did was to have us take I, sort of like a personality test is what it felt like, but it was designed um, mm. for us to both take separately and like not talk about before, before we took it or before both of us had taken it. Um, and then the results were sort of matched onto each other and the idea was to sort of make a chart of like certain parts of both our background and our current thinking and see like where we matched up in thinking and where we had you know divergences and not necessarily to like chart compatibility but just to chart like you know where we were thinking similarly versus where we were thinking very differently as like a way to um, you know, kind of, kind of, sess out what might be explored in either counseling or just discussions between us, right? Um, and I remember one of the questions. It was like in a true/false section. One of the questions on the um, mm. on the test was something you know it was true false and then it was like phrased in statements of like i believe or that that kind of format and so Mm. the the question or whatever the statement was basically or it was not true false but agree disagree but it was basically uh uh something to the effect of if if we are having troubles in our marriage um like having a child will help solve them something like that and i think now that i'm (laughs) remembering it i think it was like a five point chart from strongly disagree to strongly agree with you know in between points and i think based on Mm -hmm. our later uh conversation i think karen and i both mashed the strongly disagree button because even as young and foolish as we were we knew that (laughs) like you know uh stress plus additional stress does not equal less stress um but that it is a common thing that that you know uh 
mm-hmm. you can see in literature as well as in real life uh, from down the years this idea that if you have a if your marriage specifically is troubled that that you know uh, having a child will somehow fix that and I um, Masha and um, now I've forgotten uh, Medvedenko's relationship here just really smacks to me mm-hmm. of two people who tried that solution and are living out sort of the consequences yeah. of that that attempted a solution that that this actually mm-hmm. just added an additional vector of stress um and i mean mm-hmm. I, you know i don't it's interesting because it's like in a melodrama this would like this would be what this act was about it would be shattering their marriage um you know and and in this one it's clearly mm-hmm. like not ideal and not great but it's just sort of also something that they're like living with it's like a set of like a a dynamic that that they're living with Mm mm-hmm yep it's just it it, like it's dysfunctional but it's it's working (laughs) well it's just like dysfunctional but it's functioning yeah it's yeah right (laughs) somehow (laughs) of how it does um like she does even like at the end try to plead uh with her parents to to give him a horse so that he can he can make it um like there there's a hint that she does care she does have concern for him um i i can't find exactly um oh she yeah she's talking to her father and she says papa let Semyon take a horse he has to get home uh and he just makes fun of her uh, and says, no, we can't give any horses. And, um, uh, he finally says, I'll just walk. It's, it's fine. I'll be okay. I just need to get back to the baby and, and stuff. And she's given up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's, there's a hint that it seems like she does have some care. Um, but anyway, then they, they wind up playing a game, uh, in here as well as everybody comes in, um, before Nina comes in, uh, who we we learn um, that in the uh, intervening years uh, she had a baby with um, Trigorin, um, and the baby died, and Trigorin like got bored of her and left. Yeah, and she couldn't find work on the stage, and um, or she like she she had bad. Um, performances on stage so her whole life is falling apart which is Um, like interesting if you're following the track of the idea that Tregorin is the one who sort of ruins her life um again with yep played against how sort of a melodrama both i can only imagine in Chekhov's age as well as like in in our in our time and context like a hollywood melodrama how they would play it um because Mm -hmm. it's much more an ongoing series of minor disasters that puts her in a miserable place. Uh, whereas a melodrama, mm-hmm. you know, there would be some shocking major scene. Um, you know, Tregorin would do something or fail to do something. She would be harmed. She would end up in the hospital. He wouldn't mm-hmm. come to visit her. Any number of, you know, there's like different possibilities, but it would be some shocking thing like that. And it's, if if you assume that how she ends up is the is this this foreshadowed this you know this loaded gun from acts two and three and this is the firing of it in 
her life being essentially ruined and miserable. It's a much, it's, it's like much harder to put your finger on than you would usually find in drama, especially in melodrama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I will um, say while we're right in this section, um, uh, just before Nina comes in, um, mm-hmm. and Constantine is talking, uh, oh, he's like reading through something that he's written. Um, so he's more or less monologuing, uh, out loud, though, that it's a little bit mediated, so it's a little bit less of a <laughs> obvious artifice than, like, a Shakespeare character monologuing. But um, what I wanted to point to highlight here is, if anything is a direct commentary where it seems to me like maybe Chekhov is just coming out of the page or out of the mouth of his character here, um, it's kind of in the middle of this this monologue just before Nina comes in. Constantine says, the more I write, the more I think it's not a matter of old forms and new forms. What's important is to write without thinking about forms at all. Just write and pour out what mm-hmm. is, whatever's in your heart. Um, and this is, this is both a, you know, the charting of an arc on Constantine's part that he kind of lays out for himself, as well as, um, I think, a conclusion that it seems to me like a lot of slightly older writers arrive at when reflecting back on their younger selves because often the first thing that a younger writer and i very much include myself with this i i find this monologue a little bit hurtful in that i'm very interested in forms and find them fascinating um and don't want to not think about them but uh you know often you know younger and less experienced writers they focus on form because it gives them something external to uh, sort of hang their hat on or, or look at. Whereas older writers, especially mm-hmm. ones who do end up being somewhat revolutionary, find that in writing what they need to write, the form sort of creates itself. Like the form is not the yeah. path you follow, it's the footprints you leave behind in the snow. And I don't know, maybe there's a more complicated reading of this. Maybe this is not Chekhov being as on the nose as I think. But, like, to me, this just seemed like if there was one place where Chekhov just kind of grabs us by the lapels and tells us what he wants us to know, <laughs> just instinctively this feels like it. Yeah, no, it's it, it, it seems certainly that way. And it's always hard when you have uh, something... A, a writing or play, you know, that's about mm-hmm. writing, <laughs> you know, and, and this this falls into that category because you've got the playwright and the novelist uh, being present here. Um, so not only is it a play about a play, but it's writing about writing. Um, and so this would seem to be one of those places where the writer comes out and says, this is my philosophy on, on writing, um, which it's you know it's one of those things that this this is coming out of the mouth of uh, a dead man really he's 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 on his way to the end uh at this point so which which gives it extra weight and honesty in the conventions of fiction and in the conventions um, of real life often you know someone's last will and yep, testament yep. assuming it's produced from a relatively sound mind is often considered you know to have extra weight extra gravity Right. 
Um, that does come like that. That's the the last thing he says, um, before Nina comes. Um, before he's or the last thing on his own, really. Um, before then, he sees Nina come in. Um, and he has the the conversation with her. Um, which it's interesting that Trigorin was there earlier. You know, you you hear this this story about how Trigorin treated Nina. And all the misfortune that Nina underwent, underwent, and then Tregorn comes in, and he's just, you know, he's there playing cards right. with him, um, which, you know, it's a cultural thing that's uh, uh, certainly there. But that it, it's highlighted by Chekhov as well uh, that uh, as they're playing um, their game here, Tregorn says, "Ladies and gentlemen, I've won," which is it, it's he didn't only win the game; he's mm-hmm. he's won everything. Um, he's he he is the winner, and. Uh, Arkadina uh, uh, underlines that by saying this gentleman is always lucky everywhere. Um, so it's it, he's he's always the winner. He he always wins. Um, and that's it's shortly after that that we see um, Trepliov um, there on his own writing and then coming speaking that philosophy on writing um, that it's just it has to come freely from the soul. And then he communicates with with Nina who. Um, comes almost um repentant mm-hmm. uh to Tripliov. Um but uh I don't know, it's it's interesting. She she says you should kill me uh-huh. um in her uh last big long speech. She's got one that's uh almost as long uh after that. But uh she says that you should kill me, which brings to mind the image of the mm-hmm. seagull again. Um they're like the way the seagull was killed you know um makes you wonder if it's nina's dream dying that ultimate that is sort of the last thing for tripliev um that's what i was gonna uh ask you about um ultimately why does uh tripliev kill himself i mean Um, i think that's um we've we've referenced on this podcast before uh Dr. Emma Smith, I believe, um, who wrote her, who uh, uh, gave the lecture series "Approaching Shakespeare," um, in yep. which, uh, which is a lecture series she did at Oxford, I believe. Um, and last time mm-hmm. I checked, is available as a free podcast, um, like RSS feed, uh, and is brilliant um, if you're interested in Absolutely. Shakespeare. Uh, or you know literary interpretation generally even um but as we've Mm -hmm. we've mentioned before she what she does in each of those lectures is ask a single question about the play and use that as the springboard Mm -hmm. for a a 50 to 60 minute lecture um and i think that why does trepliev kill himself you know uh could be our springboard for another 50 to 60 minute um episode it certainly could. Uh, so we're never going to answer it is what i is is my initial answer to your question um but i think <laughs> the reading that does stand out to me is that finally at the end of everything when um Tripliov has had his his play uh you know derided from from page four through to all of the ways in which he's lost things lost dreams um been made ridiculous but whether by himself or otherwise um you know i don't i don't know what he'd say uh let alone what anyone else might say but 
Um, I think it's finally the shattering of Nina's dream that shatters his his last final dream. Almost almost as though um, mm. in idealizing Nina as he has done from page one, um, he he almost. All right, I'm gonna say this. He made him. He made Nina his Horcrux. Um, he put some of his <laughs> life and some of his dream into Nina, and when and it's ultimately the shattering of her that shatters him. Um, and I can't believe I've said Got that it. he made her his Horcrux in a interpretation of a Chekhov play, but here we are. Um, <laughs> but that said, that's good. Uh, yeah, that's um, good. And and, and it, it ties together the like double implication of the seagull because a, a, another less interesting like one question to drive 60 minutes of of discussion would be who is the seagull because i think you could make a strong case maybe even among others you could maybe even make a case for masha and and who anyone in this play who has a dream or has a dream that's that's shattered um which is potentially almost everyone but um possibly the two strongest arguments would be Nina or Treplyov, um, or both of them. And that in this sort of double shattering, this double, um, uh, what I would call a tragic ending in the, in the face of Chekhov putting the word comedy in his title, um, <laughs> that, yep. you know, they both are the seagull in a sense, or they're the seagull together somehow. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, okay, so that you, you've you hit on a bunch of things that we've already discussed. So you, you said, you know, we'll, we'll never answer that question. And at the same time, I think we already have answered that mm-hmm. question um, because of all the interpretation that we've done so far. Um, but yeah, it, he horcruxed Nina. Um, and that's uh, emphasized here by her final words. The last words she says are the words of his play. Mm-hmm. Um from from act one she recites parts of his play but the thing is the context of her reciting that is her confessing how much she still loves Mm. Trigorin. um that's the last sentiment that she expresses is her love for Trigorin, this other writer and now um uh trepliov's own words are turned into an emblem of that love um and like he is pretty much shunted out of his own work um and uh, then she she hugs him and runs out. Uh, and the, so Treplyov's last line and directions here, uh, it's after a pause. He says, it'll be awkward if someone meets her in the garden and then tells Mana, Mama it could hurt Mama, uh, ellipsis. And then for two whole minutes, he silently tears up all his manuscripts and throws them under the desk. Then he opens the right hand door and goes out. Um two whole minutes that he gets in silence on the stage while he's destroying the manuscripts like that's that's an impactful thing to yeah, put on the stage yeah that's a lot of silence to um, be on stage that so much time on stage um that that would have an effect on the readers and it's something that you could easily skip over mm. in just reading it uh also like you would focus on he's tearing up all his manuscripts which is certainly important but like the fact that he's taking two whole minutes to do this um is just massive so like this this emblem of uh his idol's love for someone else 
which he has become, uh, like he kind of has to destroy all of that. But also it's done in the context of him being concerned for his mother, going back to the Oedipus complex uh, again, um, that, uh, that that's that's his focus, at least in his his words, that he, he wants to protect his mother. But then by going out and killing himself, he's not protecting his mother. However, um, the doctor is there protecting mm-hmm. his mother um, at the end. After, you know, you hear the shot, the doctor says um, something must have exploded right. <laughs> in in my traveling medicine chest. Uh, and he says, yeah, it was just a bottle of ether that went off. And makes very sure um, to and then uh, she... construct the situation in such a way that she is completely protected from this, at least as much as it will ever be possible to do so. Yes. Um, right. Like, obviously, at some point, she's going to need right. to know the truth. But at least for the sake of the play and within the context of the play, she is completely sheltered which is completely an interesting you could call it an inversion or almost not an inversion of um this is the doctor that the mother earlier uh pleaded to look after constantine look after trepliov Mm -hmm. yep yep Yep, and well, and it's an inversion of the the parent child relationship mm-hmm. in general, too, um, and it, which is interesting too because you can perhaps see in Trepliov's suicide a failure of uh, his parent, his mother, to protect him. That you know he hasn't mm-hmm. been protected, but even in that, he's trying to also protect his mother in some way, um, some upset mm-hmm. sort of way. It's it, so it, like everything does build to this even though it does almost seem like it comes Mm -hmm. out of nowhere um i think especially on stage having those two minutes of silence as he's tearing up the manuscripts will really make that real and impactful um because there's so much and this is something that con uh um is um very good at anyway is putting so much Mm. in between the lines um and in the interpretation of the lines um you've got to read each line multiple times to get like okay what's the multitude of different interpretations this can take uh and how can how will it really be demonstrated on stage we did an exercise um in a theater class in college uh where we took some lines from the cherry orchard um well, our teacher, uh, our professor, took some lines from the Cherry Orchard, basically like a one-page scene, stripped him t- them entirely of punctuation and capitalization, uh, and said, make a scene out of this. Uh, which, you know, with no stage directions, no punctuation, all of these lines could mean anything. And the interpretations of it were all over the place, from a parent putting a child to bed, to a fairy tale uh, encounter of a princess and a prince, uh, to all sorts, like a serial killer, uh, all sorts of different things uh, could be interpreted on these lines. Is that the one... Did it have the lines, do you love me? And also are... Yes. uh, What was it? I'm going away far goodbye yeah karen and Mm -hmm. i still quote those lines um because i think at least one directing class i was in that scene three different times i want to say 
Mm-hmm. And she was in it at least one or two times. Um, and I think that I, my favorite scene, uh, because I was acting with our friend Alyssa, um, was I was like, I think I was a husband who had uh, discovered that his wife was cheating on him. And the scene was basically like a fight between the two of us about like <clears throat> whether we were going to stay together or not, more or less. Like not not nice. just a fight, but like a yawing nice. between fight and like pathos. And yeah, I, I never knew or I never realized that those lines were from the cherry orchard. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Um. Which was the intent of the exercise anyway. They're generic enough that they could be from anywhere, but they, yeah, they were from the cherry orchard. Um, But yeah, so, um, but that, and that's, that's the mastery of Chekhov is, is putting so much in between the lines. Um, And it even comes at the very end of the play because, you know, you hear this shot and by convention of the theater, you should know exactly what it is. But then again, you get this Mm -hmm. redirect uh, as you had with the seagull and Nina saying you should kill me and all of this. So it's like, okay, we saw him go off. Um, is it, did he kill Nina? Did he kill himself? Did, did something just explode in the medicine chest? And then when Dorn comes back in and says, ah, I was right. A bottle of ether went off and it's like, oh, okay. And now we've got more mm-hmm. play to, to get to the resolution. So at that point we're like, all right, when trep, when is Trepliov going to come back in? Right. Um, because he's, the main character we need to see his resolution um if he didn't kill himself here what's what's going to happen but then um she goes down and um then interestingly dorn goes and talks to trigorin um who if anyone is is the villain of the play um and quietly dropping his voice as he's like pretending to to want to talk to him about something else then at the very end he says take arena nikolaevna somewhere away from here the fact is konstantin gavrilovich has shot himself ellipsis curtain um so the way that that would play out on stage is like here here's the the hammer dropping right here this this is the the big huge weight we're just throwing in everyone's lap and then we're done with it and now you need to deal with that um which it it, like it could almost be misused as a melodramatic sort of thing but it it, like the way Chekhov is is playing this is um with all the redirects and everything too you get to this point that um you're you're invested emotionally in this character of Trepliov and in his mother as well and now all of a sudden you hear, nope, he's dead. He he has shot himself. Now we right. need to deal with it. <laughs> I think, you know, and I think that with um, staging, you certainly could make it melodramatic. But, like, just the fact of it being the very last thing without any kind of denouement after mm-hmm. it, I think inherently is going to make it, like, if, if a, even, even in the hands of, like, a mediocre set of artists, it's going to make it, like, a stunning moment, I think. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Just just stunning. Yeah. So. Well, that brings us to the end of yeah. the play here, Ethan. Did you have other thoughts you wanted to share no, on the I seagull? Like, Anything we've talked frankly, about? Frankly, I like your interpretation point. of the ending better than my own, so. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, good. so what I would like to do is, like, <laughs> rephrase your entire interpretation 
sort of in my own words so that I might take credit for it, but I, I don't know if I actually could do that if I wanted to. <laughs> Sure. Oh, good. Uh, well, with that, gentle listener, this concludes our discussion of The Seagull by Anton Chekhov, uh, the the one episode that we were, um, we, we've now turned into two. Um, Michael and Ethan tradition. So uh, next time we are going to, uh, I think, be talking about War and Peace Certainly by soon. Leo Tolstoy. Certainly soon we will be doing um, that. At this point, that's soon. all I'm willing to promise. Soon. <laughs> so stay in this hotel <laughs> we'll see you we'll see you <laughs> we'll definitely do some kissing <laughs> but we're committed to that um yes. yes good well if you liked this show uh gentle listener please give us a rating um five stars would be excellent that helps other people find us um and it helps the the internet goblins know where to to um give all the credit um and that's that's to us we want we want the internet goblin credit one kind of got um, away from you huh we want it <laughs> it did it's okay is it <laughs> sorry anyway um yeah i i gave all of the the information for how to contact us and everything in the last episode so i'm not going to do that here presumably you listen to all of that um, but, uh, until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if the things that Chekhov doesn't say make us. And they do. Okay. They do. It's true. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.